Hello and welcome back to the podcast in an imperfect world. Today I have Mark Carroll on the podcast. That is not something I thought I would be ever able to say because Mark is someone that I've looked up to and admired for absolutely years in the fitness industry. He is absolutely phenomenal at what he does. He is one of the leading coaches and educators in the world. He started off doing park sessions in his local park because he didn't have the confidence to start off in a gym. And now he has sold over 115,000 programs and he also has one-to-one clients that he coaches who are bikini competitors that hold world titles. He is an incredible coach and extremely down-to-earth and I was so grateful to be able to have him on the podcast today. We speak all about dieting, muscle loss, trying to gain muscle while in a deficit. We speak about optimal gains for growing your glutes. We speak about what exercises to do, what exercises not to do. We speak about warm-ups, stretching, and we also finish off speaking a lot about COVID. I think that was one thing that I really wanted to bring into this podcast as I've had COVID myself, Mark has had COVID, many of his clients have and mine do as well. So muscle loss, what food to be having during COVID and how we've dealt with clients and, and it might help coaches, but also people going through COVID at the time and wanting to be able to maintain the results that they've got. Hopefully you gain something from this podcast and I'm super excited for you to listen. Mark, thank you so much for coming on this morning. I cannot thank you enough. Um, I am very, very grateful, but very humbled for having you on. It was, I to be honest, I wasn't even going to message you because I just thought, no, there's absolutely no way. And I saw you were on Shane Walsh's podcast and I listened to that and that was absolutely incredible. Um, and myself and Shane would quite have a lot of the same audience in terms of gen pop and I just think this is going to be an absolutely incredible conversation. So what I'm going to do is let you take the stage and tell everyone who you are, what you do and kind of your background, because your background is quite interesting of where you've come from and how you got into the industry. Sure. Thank you for having me, firstly. Um, yeah, so my name's Mark. Um, Instagram, people kind of know me as Coach Mark Carroll, I guess. Um, that's kind of where I've built my audience and... Um, these days I, I train, I train people privately one-on-one, a, a few people, not as many these days. I try to kind of train kind of high level kind of pro kind of competitors and stuff like that. My client on the weekend, she won the WBFF world bikini title in her category neuro. And my client, um, Emily King came third, I'm oh, sorry, came second in the world in her pro show as well in her figure category. So they're kind of the people I kind of train it personally. Um, but then basically my business is kind of around, um, you know, 12 week programs, challenges. And at the moment, I think in the last three years we've had, I think almost 115,000 people kind of do my programs the last couple of years. So I, I train with a lot of people, a lot of women and stuff like that. And so that's kind of cool these days and all those kind of things I'm doing, but the back, my background was quite different. I've been in the industry for geez, 15 years now. I'm getting old and yeah, I started off definitely not kind of doing what I was doing now and from a business sense or even a clientele kind of um, sense of what I'm doing now. My background was park fitness, which was, um, I guess as complete opposite of kind of what I'm doing now and, I did group fitness training. I did boxing classes. I did group circuit classes, um, you name it. And it was kind of working in, in the parks in Sydney in Australia. And yeah, it was cold. So now it's kind of been a, a massive kind of transformation of some degrees going from park fitness instructor to 
then kind of, yeah, training people like that, like I do now, and even from a business kind of perspective, who I work with now, and I guess the size of my business and stuff like that, it was, it was definitely never intended. Um, And that's kind of, I like to say, it's kind of one of the things with life, you know, you just kind of run with things. And when things go well, opportunities arise, you kind of want to take it and let things kind of organically kind of progress. And yeah, so at the moment, kind of what I'm doing now, it's definitely not what I was doing um, 15 years ago or ever expecting to do it. But yeah, so it's pretty cool. And I get to work with uh, insane amount of people considering, you know, I used to struggle to get five, six clients a week in a park. So it's been an evolution, that's for sure. That's absolutely incredible. Well, congrats firstly on, I did see in May, I think it was that you hit over a hundred thousand on your program and now you're at a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, May. So, and yeah, so it's, it's been pretty cool and something you're kind of never expecting and, but Hey, I'll take it. That's for sure. Absolutely amazing. But one thing I'm going to pick out there is the fact that you just said you struggled to even get five, six clients when you did the park and now you're getting 115,000 and you're turning away because you get so many um, people coming for your one-to-one and asking all the time that you're so busy. Did you ever think you'd get to that stage? And there's there's so many coaches out there. There's such a massive drop-off rate in the first year of PT because people, they can't see past those five, six clients. And they just think that there's absolutely no hope. And they look at people like you and say, oh, well, he's just had it easy. He just, he has a following. So it just grows naturally and he's able to get clients. Yeah, so it's an interesting one because, you know, people often look at people's following and stuff like that. And yeah, if if you're like a beautiful person or a fitness model and stuff like that, then it's quite different. And I'm neither of those things, that's for sure. Um, So my following has kind of been built off, you know, I guess my knowledge and ability to help people. And so it's kind of a, my my kind of way I've kind of if I look at my journey and kind of like my business kind of journey and things like that something I never ever kind of focused on or ever really thought about was kind of the money side of things and the business side of things Um, I did a lot of courses education starting out in my career and well, a lot of the, for, you know, the first couple of years, I didn't do a lot of stuff. And then I found out, Hey, you know what, you don't just have to get your, your basic PT qualifications. And once I started investing a lot of education, it was never a standpoint of, Oh man, I want to invest into these education courses to make more money or get a lot of clients. It's more that I just wanted to get clients, great results. That was always the goal. And so these days fitness is quite different with social media and I think people see PT as this like glamorous kind of job online and people, you know, doing nice things and having nice cars and whatnot and stuff like that. But when I got into it, it was kind of like a, my family were kind of like, oh, you're a PT. And I remember my granddad was like a, a very, very religious person. And he was just like, really? Like he was, yeah. So he, he wasn't very impressed with the whole PT thing. So I think no one was kind of, it wasn't this glamorous thing that people kind of see these days. And so for me, I just kind of attacked learning because I just wanted to be really good at what I did. And um, going back to the question about not having many clients was 
I actually did park fitness because I didn't even have the confidence to go to a gym and um, talk to people and even get a job there. And then it's funny, after I finally did work up my confidence, I actually applied at six gyms and they all said no to me. Um, so that was pretty interesting. So nothing in the, I guess the journey has ever been easy at the start. It was probably I had about a hundred times I almost quit and stuff like that. So I think... I think a lot of people and we all kind of are guilty of it kind of expect ourselves just to hit the ground running and you know everything is so smooth sailing and we just kill it or as me for me I've you know I, I joke I've kind of been a failure for most of my life until the last few years but the last few years this I guess this, I hate using the word but the success I guess I've had the last few years was on the back end of failing and then trying and trying and feeling like no one's listening and knocking on the door and getting, you know, no one opening it, but it's just kind of doing the little things. And as cliche as it sounds, it's just doing the right things well for a long time. And then when an opportunity kind of arises, you then are prepared for that opportunity to then crush it. So that's kind of been, been I guess, the focus of it. And I think sorry going back to kind of the question with getting clients and stuff like that it's why it's a it's a really slow process you know just because you're the busiest person in the gym at the start doesn't mean necessarily you're good at what you do and one of the things for me where I wasn't super busy at the start was it allowed me to learn and not be the so so busy where I couldn't even think about upskilling and stuff like that so it allowed me to get better and better and better build my confidence with a few people so at the time it felt shit because I could barely make any money and you know pay my life bills and my life and stuff like that but looking back now it's also allowed me to um, slowly but surely get better and better and better and to you know continually build and build upon it to kind of where I'm at right now I think that's really important what you just said about money because a lot of people look at people have been in the industry a long time and they've earned their way and if they have made a living and they they want to spend their money on nice things, that's absolutely fine. But they you need to realize that that person got there by working really hard. And it, it's not just money and flashy cars. There's a lot of work behind it, especially with online coaching. People think that online coaches just sit in the gym all day and train. Um, but it is probably harder than a nine to five office job at times. It's a, it's a different world kind of online coaching and something... <laughs> I, was, I saw someone, I forget who it was today in their website, or they were complaining about how hard online coaching is. And I looked at their website I was just, and they said one of the, the key messaging on their website was um, access to me 24 seven. And that's something people often put out. And that's a big kind of mistake online coaches make because they kind of then open themselves up to, Hey, I'll reply to you no matter where you are in the world. And with online, you get, you know, clients all over the world. And so people are just messaging you nonstop seven days a week. And so sometimes you people, even coaches forget to put their boundaries out there. And so you just get crushed with that pressure to reply to people always. And so if you work in the business world, you know, you message someone like I was talking to my accountant today for good old tax and, you know, they won't, they, they're not going to reply to you on the weekend, you know, and that's just it. It's a nine to five job and that's fine. And you, whatever business world or whatever but then i think in trainers they open themselves up too much to being like hey i want clients and i'm here 24 7 and then you're actually doing yourself a disservice and then you're over kind of over kind of giving to people and then they kind of 
a lot of people you know of clients they they you give them a little and they just take and take and take so it's yeah. a, it's a it's a hard thing being an online coach because you want to be there for everyone but when it comes to emailing texting and all that stuff it's, it it gets very um mentally draining yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that I even changed myself. I got myself a work phone. And since then, I've actually been giving a better service because when I'm working, I'm working rather than that 20. I used to say 24 seven because I was like, well, if I say 24 seven and someone else doesn't, then I'm a better I'm giving a better service. But you're actually giving probably less of a service because you're you're not you're not working in, in work hours and you're pulling yourself from from left to right. But Going into, I suppose, the the first thing that I want to chat about is dieting. So you would work with a lot of weight loss clients and bikini competitors. Starting off with, I suppose, the bikini competitors and, and gen pop, do you think that the approach to dieting is different um, or it's the mentality that is different around that? How would you, if you were to get a gen pop lady now that has no intentions of competing, and then the ladies that have gone to the worlds like you have now, would you approach them differently? Yes and no. Again, it's obviously you've got your principles of nutrition. So your principles of things like energy balance. For me, it's kind of educating clients, understanding calories, understanding why it matters, understanding why they need to, if they have, have a specific goal, whether you're a gen pop or a pro bikini client, obviously you need to adhere to those key principles. For me, I'd say I'm in a position where I'm quite lucky that the people who come to me have some base of education. They're people, general population people in there. They're people who are very knowledge seeking or they've already followed you for a while. And so they have a base knowledge. So I think I've got an easier job dealing with gen pop than a lot of other people. But in saying that with a general population client, you don't also want to kind of make it too basic. I think a lot of the times we underestimate someone's ability to learn and pick up something very quickly. So I think a lot of times like, ah, it's, it's too hard for them. Just, just give them a meal plan or just, just tell them to eat less or clear out, clean up their diet. And then in turn, what happens is the person doesn't get great results and they get very slow progression and then they don't create buy and you don't get no, any momentum with them. And then after a month, six weeks, they start to doubt the process, doubt themselves, doubt you as a coach, and then you lose them. So something I did about six, seven years ago when I um, started kind of doing course around the world and stuff like that was I started to teach coaches to treat general population clients almost like a comp prep but not for a standpoint of oh my god let's go crazy hard let's get incredibly lean but I wanted them to see that thinking of clients as having a time frame a goal and not just hey we get a client and just hope for the best so when I prep someone for a comp we might have a 16 week prep so they start at x and we want to get them to y and it's a very set out kind of date and each week we kind of hold them accountable to that whereas I found with many general population clients and coaches who are really struggling to get great results was about sign them up for say, you know, a package of three sessions or six sessions or something like that. And it was almost a week to week thing. And there was no kind of goals, just, Hey, you give me $50 and I'll train you and I'll see you next week. And that was it. So I really try to lift the level in a lot of my courses with coaches. And what really worked well was when they started to understand that, Hey, let's treat our client similar to a comp prep with a general population client from a standpoint of 
let's set some goals. Let's have a specific goal. Let's sit down in our initial consult, know exactly where the client wants to go, know the whys behind it, the time frame behind it. So I think that's really important. Do you have to diet them as hard? No. Do they have to do as much training? No. But if they have a specific goal, we want to kind of respect that goal and do everything we can within reason to create a strategy to get them from um, A to B. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even I would try and bring in a lifestyle change, I suppose, quote unquote, to clients so that they're not just dieting and then that's it. And then they go back to old habits. But there is a fine line between having it as a lifestyle change and it going on then as an almost 30 week on off on off diet there should be a shorter period of time yeah and so i think i think it's kind of a combination whereas you kind of want to look at it be like all right so this person do they want to be a comp prep person no do they want to be a bikini model or whatever no but a lot of them I think also then a lot of people also think they don't have that strong a goal. So a lot of people do want to look a certain way or feel a certain way. So it's important to kind of look at, well, can they achieve that goal within their kind of lifestyle? And a lot of the times they can, it's not as extreme a goal as I think a lot of people think it's just about kind of like the lowest hanging fruit, what lifestyle interventions will give us our biggest bang for bang for our buck Let's focus on those. We don't need to do the 10 other things a comp prep competitor might focus on, but let's do the biggest kind of bang for our buck things to get that person there. And then once you, I, I find as well, once you get someone a decent result to start with, let's say their goal was seven kilos. If you go quite, not, I don't want to use the word strict, but if you focus really on those goals of that seven kilos and they get that goal, you're going to obviously build up their confidence, their, their self-esteem, their just their belief that they can do stuff. And then I find, I like the term success is contagious. When someone does something well, it builds up their belief that they can do it. And when they feel like that, they're open to them wanting to learn more. And then all of a sudden those habits you've been working on then become more of a, a like a set in stone habit. And then when you say kind of oh, a lifestyle we want to kind of slowly obviously transition them from that lifestyle from doing nothing, going out drinking all the time to let's get them a result, but let's also balance that out with, Hey, let's train three days a week. Let's be mindful of our calories, be mindful of our protein, but then let's also be able to actually go out with your partner on the weekend and things like that. Let's be able to have the skills to have one or two wines, but then also know when to stop um, drinking. So it's, it's, it's definitely a balance, but I think, one of the cool things is when you see someone get a good result initially, then they're going to be more receptive to then seeing it as a, a lifestyle that they can maintain over something like, oh man, I just did that for eight weeks. I did a generic meal plan. I dieted on 1100 calories. Thank God that's finished. I'm going to move on now to, I've got that goal. So getting them that result, but in a sustainable manner, which they think, you know what, I can do this long-term, I think is really important. Yeah. And that's one thing that I think, is a good skill for a coach to have is yes being able to help someone diet but then actually helping someone maintain it after is is almost even harder for some clients yeah so this is something like i definitely made mistakes of in the past with my own coaching was that you always think about you know results and transformation stuff like that but you never really think too much about well what happens after the transformation? Mm -hmm. 
So I was really good at six, seven, eight years ago. I was getting really, really great results, but then um, I wasn't very good at, not good at, but it was kind of like, all right, they signed you up, for, you signed them up for 12 weeks. They'll get a great result. And I was like, all right, see ya. And then you'd see them in six months time. And all of a sudden they didn't look anything like how they looked in their, in their after photos. So that was always like a, one of those things where it's like, all right, so what was going wrong there? And that's where I realized that, Hey, just because you got someone a good result doesn't mean they're going to keep doing it and they're going to keep those habits up. So that's where for me, it was like really upskilling my knowledge on how to sustain a result and then also how to help educate the client on being able to keep their result. And, you know, the research kind of so strongly is that the people who really understand that the habits that got them the result are going to be that. So with growing muscle in a deficit, this is, I suppose, one that people definitely struggle with and, People want, I suppose, all the rags in one basket and they want to be able to build muscle, but also get lean, lose weight, but also keep muscle. And people find themselves toying between the two and then not actually being able to achieve either of them because they don't know which way to go. Would you approach it that you would prefer to bring a client into a gaining phase and then into a fat loss phase or work around the middle? Or does it depend on the individual? So would I prefer, so if someone comes to me and they want both, um, you know, build muscle, lose fat, it would very much depend on kind of where they're at. So if, if someone comes to me, I'll rephrase that. I'll try to get this, get my point across. Sometimes I get this idea in my head and try to get it out. I get a lot of ladies coming to me and this is the term they will use, not the one I'm using, but they will say I'm skinny fat. So I don't really have that much body fat, but I don't really have that much. I don't have weight to lose, but I don't have much muscle. I want to grow my glutes and they find it hard to know if it's possible to build muscle and lose weight at the same time, I suppose. Yeah. So if someone is more of a beginner, I think it's much more of a, of a potential to do that. When it comes to kind of, if we're talking about kind of recomping when people are like, oh, I want to lose muscle and build body fat, my kind of area I'd kind of look to recomp someone is a conservative deficit. So something like a 20% deficit, I think at least gives you the potential to build muscle and lose fat simultaneously. But the more advanced they are, or they've been lifting for years and stuff like that, the higher it is. But I'm a big believer in kind of doing one goal and doing it well and I tend to find that when people kind of come to you and they want a bit of both, they've also kind of been in no man's land kind of where they're not doing either for a long time. So I think sometimes it's best to commit to one goal. So that's where I kind of look at obviously where they're at, where their physique is at, um, what's most pressing. So if someone, I got a message the other day. So someone said, I really want to lose. I've been wanting to lose 10 kilos for so long but I also want to build my glutes. What should I do? And so I said, well, let's lose the 10 kilos first, because if you go to into a build to build glutes, for example, you're going to be getting away from even higher away from that 10 kilos. And so I think you could with fat loss, I think obviously it's going to be quicker. So if someone's only a couple of kilos away, sometimes it's best just to attack that goal, get that done, see how they feel. Cause obviously when you lose body fat, that's also going to reveal a lot more about your physique. So some people go, wow, well, I actually had more muscle than I thought because I got leaner and I can see muscle definition. But on the flip side, you also get, wow, 
I've really got no muscle. Where did my glutes go? Where did all that stuff go? So that's sometimes uh, one way you can look at it. Or you can then kind of commit to a build. But with a bit with the building side of things, it's also hard because especially I'm sure you know as a coach, working with women and all of a sudden you go, all right, this build, you, you want to put on muscle. But really to do that properly, we're going to probably need six months. And so telling someone that they're going to need to spend considerable time out of a, of a deficit is not always easy. But if they're already mentally having issues with, say, their body fat levels, that's where you can also compound the issues, the problems and stuff like that. So it's really going to depend on kind of the person. It's, and it's a hard one because you often kind of give them something and then you, as a coach, you'll learn more about them, how they respond as they go. So obviously there's kind of three ways you can go that, that the recomping phase where you can do a bit of both with a conservative calorie deficit can be a good strategy. I think for more of a beginner or someone coming back from injury, that that's kind of where I'd look at it. Some, someone who has been, you know, in that realm of I've been dieting and then I binge, I've been dying and I binge. I think they're the ones who you really want to kind of get out of a deficit and spend time with calories up. And then the people who are quite close to their fat loss goal, I kind of go, all right, let's just get that goal. Let's achieve that first. Cause that's something we could maybe do in six, four, six, eight weeks. Some people often go, oh, I'm only three kilos away. Well, let's get that goal done first. Let's tick that one off and see how you feel there and then start building calories up. Sorry, that was a longer answer. No, but it's it's very true. You actually, I saw in your stories this morning, you got that question about how long to spend in a in a gaining phase. And that I often see that quite a lot on Instagram is that people will do a six week gaining phase. And I myself did a seven month gaining phase and I gained about seven kg. but that is where I built so much muscle, but it took time and people just don't like when, when the word time comes into it. Yeah. And it, in the Instagram world as well, you know, everyone wants to look good. They're in, they're in photos every day. I remember 10 10, 12, 14, 15 years ago, you weren't taking photos of yourself every single day in the gym and all this, like you wouldn't, no one would really see you or you'd see your friends on the weekend or something like that. But these days you're just always on everyone, you know, on camera and stuff like that. So it's quite hard mentally to get around the fact that, Hey, I'm not going to be as lean, but this is where kind of, I try to educate on, well, do you want to, do you want to really get better and do you want to think long-term or do you want to kind of just do what's going to help you right now, you know, make you feel better in six weeks. So it's really kind of, kind of depends, but I think the hardest thing is that muscle building is such a slow process and that's something people struggle to get their head around. And I think my the person was like, you know, I always put on body fat quickly and stuff like that. But the issue is, yes, you will, but you don't know if you keep running back to a deficit after six weeks, you're not never going to get the rewards for actually committing to that surplus. So the more you can commit to that surplus and just dive into it and spend time there, the more you'll actually get something back when eventually you do come down. And yeah, as you said, seven months for you is a, was a, was a good number. I, I really think an absolute bare minimum, I, I might do like, you know, 12 to 16 weeks for competitors between shows or something. But for the majority of lifters, if you can get six, seven, eight months or even longer sometimes, it's where the, the real magic begins to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a process more so for the mind, especially for, well, I, I don't coach men, so I'm not going to speak on men's behalf, but especially I find with ladies, 
the mental struggle is even harder because it's the gaining of the body fat clothes not fitting as well as they did not feeling as comfortable and confident and you do you get used to that lean physique that you might have had and now when it's inevitable that you're going to be gaining a little bit of body fat you start to think well I can't see the muscle so when you're not actually seeing the success as such it's much harder to continue yes as the thing is kind of exactly what you said there is that when you're in you feel noticing body fat going up so you're not actually visually seeing the muscle so nothing feels better than when you're lean and you see your muscles working stuff in the gym you're like oh wow but when you're building phase when you look in the mirror often you think very negative things not positive things even though you're actually doing exactly what your physique needs so it's a bit of a a mind game and that's why i'm a really big fan of kind of like setting performance goals in a build for a client so they walk into the gym and they have a target of hey i want to add this to my squad i've got a goal of hitting you know a hundred kilo deadlift or whatever like that so we set performance goals in building phases because i want them to walk into the gym with a purpose and not walk into the gym being like oh man i don't look like i used to and so that can often play with people's minds so if you can kind of try to rework the gym as not being, hey, the gym is a place where I just want to take selfies and show off how lean I am. Whereas it now becomes a place of, hey, I want to get in the gym and I want to share videos of me crushing squat goals and stuff like that. I think that's kind of something that can really help in a building phase. Absolutely. And when it comes into then going into a deficit, what are the tips that you would give someone to maintain the muscle and not lose the muscle when when they are going into that deficit? Yeah, so the research is super, super strong just around, obviously, protein intake. If you keep protein intake high, even on pretty pretty um, aggressive deficits, you're still probably going to um, retain majority of your muscle mass. So protein is just such a, such a big factor combined with um, resistance training. So if you get those two right, even if you're going a more aggressive deficit, which I sometimes use these days, it's not going to be a case of, oh, my God, I'm losing all my muscle on a you know 35 40% deficit immediately and stuff like that which i think a lot of us used to think but if you can you know in the gym my my big focus with clients is keep resistance training keep trying to um train to get stronger have that intent that you turn up to the gym to get stronger i think that's going to be always a big driver of maintaining um muscle tissue in a deficit combined with um getting those protein intake probably a lot higher um, than people think when you when you get general population people coming to you that's often the hardest thing where you, they, they're used to maybe eating one one meal of protein 40 grams of protein a day and then all of a sudden you're telling them to hey have one one and a half grams or you know up to two grams of protein a day it can be quite a quite a, a shock to the system but once you kind of get that then transition to eating more more protein combined with resistance training then that's going to be the real driver. And just on that topic is, I was just, I think I was just answering a question before on it is that, you know, for as well, clients not seeing carbohydrates as something that they need to be scared of and stuff in deficit as well, which is for me, my clients, I love having carbohydrates in their fat loss phases because it's going to help with performance in the gym. A resistance training is anaerobic. So having carbohydrates to help, fuel those sessions is going to be really important that that real real key um component of also ensuring that your performance stays high in the gym to help maintain that muscle mass amazing yeah carbs is definitely one that people completely panic about when it comes into a deficit phase 
yeah, so I'm a big fan of with my clients, kind of a lower fat within reason. So we just kind of hit the, the fat level of basic health kind of around that 0.8 grams per kilogram is kind of where I set um, fats and then the rest after our hitting our kind of protein goal. My goal is just to push as carbs as high as we can with what the calories allows. And again, also I even when my clients get have to get calories really low in preps and stuff like that, my big thing is always have push your carbs before you work out to ensure that your performance stays high. Things like that, I think just little things like that really make a difference in trying to preserve your muscle mass. Then going on to, I suppose, glutes, you have coached such big names in the industry um, and incredible females that I, I follow myself on Instagram and their glute gains are absolutely incredible. And um, you, you do have quite a lot of posts on your Instagram about optimal glute gains and your favorite kind of exercises. But I suppose that is obviously one of the main things that a lot of listeners now listening will want to grow is their glutes. So we did speak about growing your glutes while losing weight at the same time and what's optimal, but going into the exercises, is there any top exercises that you absolutely love? And I suppose a little bit of your thoughts on the hip thrust. I get so many ladies that hate, hate the hip thrust and they're like, is it needed? Is it 100% needed? And then also squats is one that a lot of people absolutely think is the only thing for glutes um and i'd love your little two cents on that it's interesting you say that about the hip thrust because um actually on my screen i was just writing a blog and it's um nine mistakes ruining your glute gains that i'll i'll be um releasing or whatever in the next couple of weeks to my audience and number one on the topic the number one mistake i wrote was um thinking great glutes means only hip thrusts so a lot of people um really have that mindset of, oh my God, hip thrusts are just the be all and end all. And the thing with hip thrusts are they're, they're a fine exercise. I like them because they're pretty simple to teach, they're easy to load, they're easy to get a client under a bar. It's much easier to teach a barbell hip thrust than say a conventional deadlift or a squat and things like that. But are they key? So when, when it comes to hypertrophy adaptations and building muscle, Building muscle is different to say powerlifting. So powerlifting where you bench, squat and deadlift. If you want to get strong, specificity matters. So you need to bench, squat and deadlift. But the thing with building muscle is, is that no one exercise is a must. And that's what's cool about hypertrophy training is that if you don't like an exercise, just simply replace it for another exercise that trains that muscle group and you're still going to be well on your way. So that's, that's, that's the beauty of kind of training and resistance training is that there's so many options to building muscle. So in regards to building great glutes and stuff like that, something I talk a lot about is training with exercises, which do um, different things. So your glutes, your kind of your big glute max muscle, I try to keep this really simple in, in simple terms, it's a really big muscle and we have like an upper division and a, a lower division of the, the glute max. And so what I like to do with my training is just try to pick exercises which will help target the upper division more and the lower division. So the lower division is kind of things people think of that under butt area. And then the upper division is something that will kind of add a bit more fullness to your glutes. So hip thrusts are kind of known for kind of being that more upper division. So when I'm talking that part component of glutes, you kind of want to think exercises which are going to be harder when you're kind of stretching. So 
things like squats, lunges, um, RDLs and stuff like that, they're going to be really good at training like that lower portion of the glute max. So when your glutes are stretching at that bottom position. So that's why squats are, are, are a good exercise, but they're not the be all and end all. That's why, again, you can do lunges, you can do split squats, you can do a leg press. They're all going to train the glutes in a similar manner from that point of view. And then say that upper division of the glutes, the, um, of the glute max, which at the hip thrust does a good job. If you don't want a hip thrust, you just need to replace it with something else that does something similar. So exercises like a kickback or a 45 degree or horizontal back extension, they're all going to be training the glutes hardest when the glutes are basically contracting or shortening at the top. So the opposite to say a lunge and squat, they're going to be harder at the top of the, the, the rep. And this is going to impact say that the glute max from a standpoint of the upper division. So Try. I always try to keep try try to by my best to keep it simple. But this is why with glutes, long story short, is there's so many options because you've got so many of your favorite exercises people do. They do both. It's just kind of looking at exercises that you enjoy and doing them well, and then progressive overload, doing them, getting stronger at them, re repetition, so you practice them over and over and over again. For my clients, I don't use a huge array of, you know, I don't do 100 different exercises. We kind of stick to the key, you know, six, eight, 10 exercises I really like, and then just manipulate things like tempo, pauses, um, rest periods, rep ranges, you name it. So when it comes to glutes, you've got a lot of options. It's just by finding something you do like. Try to, try to find five, six, seven, eight exercises you do like. And then do them over and over again and get really good at them. Add weight to the bar, get strong at them, and then you're going to be well on your way to building great glutes. Yeah, that's one thing that I actually got from your page a good while ago now, I think over a year, was bringing in alternatives to make things interesting without doing shitty exercises. So if a client didn't love a barbell hip thrust um, or wasn't able to load it that much, I was starting to bring in like the cast hip thrust or the three-way hip thrust that you were doing. And instantly people were feeling a little bit more excitement about them rather than just going in and lifting this weight. Yet it was, it was still moving uh, in that movement. And one thing there that you were saying about only having a certain amount of exercises, there's a lot on Instagram now that there's crazy exercises, like four exercises in one. And, and people think that this is the way that you, you have to train now to see results, but it really is just the basics. Yeah, so it's something I like. I've got lots of friends in the industry and in glutes and stuff like that. It's been lots of arguments recently on around glutes and stuff like that, which is always interesting. And there's kind of two sides of the the arguments. You got people who talk about you know optimal and you know doing the best exercise only. Then you got other people who talk about, hey, yeah, there's a million exercises. My clients do a million different exercises. So it's for me, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. You want to try and choose what you think is probably the, going to be the best within reason but also then balance it out with some stuff which are a little bit more fun that's where you get the best of both worlds so um but in saying that from a standpoint of you know if you, you often get the argument oh well people get bored and stuff like that but that's why let's say with a hip thrust a lot of people just think you know it's just hip thrust bar on the ground then drive up bar on the ground drive up but there's so many options with with things like tempo, you can do pauses at the top. You can do one and a quarter reps. You can do triple contractions. You can do, you know, um, 10 second pause at the top to begin the rep. And then, you know, cast glute bridge where you do pulses, single leg work. You know, I, I, I can always feel like there's a variation for someone out there. And often it can just be 
the people will find it uncomfortable just loading the the um, hips with the bar. So sometimes a single leg version with just a kettlebell or a dumbbell on the on the thighs can be a better option. What I try to look for is if someone doesn't like something, I try to figure out why, what's their reasoning, and let's problem solve. What can we find as a as an alternative? But from a standpoint of an alternative, it's what is kind of the closest thing that resembles that good exercise that they don't want to do or what's something that's a logical swap. So I'm I'm trying, if they don't want to squat, they hate squats because they feel uncomfortable with a barbell on the back. Well, cool. Let's, can we do a split squat, which they feel a bit more comfortable with, with dumbbells. So it's always just making, the key is making logical swaps. And I think when, if you ever work as a PT on the gym floor at peak hour and try to program design, it's not always easy. You go, all right, we're, we're, we, we want to squat and their squat rack's taken. And so it's like, okay, that's taken, but what is the next best, most logical alternative to that movement? So that's something as a PT you have to have. And that's kind of the way I look at stuff. All right, cool. You don't want to do this or you can't do this or this is taken, whatever then let's slide across what's next, what's next, what's next. And I think that's important. So you don't get away too much from the goal of what you're trying to build, but you also then find a balance between what they can do and or don't want to do. Just something you mentioned there about single legs. So if someone came to you with their right, their right glute was much weaker than their left glute and they're doing single leg exercises, would you double up on the weaker? Would you do more reps? Would you start on the weaker leg and then and then match the stronger leg? How do you go about weaknesses? You kind of want to look at kind of what they've been doing. And obviously, and if someone comes to me, I look at their technique. I look at um, their mobility. And a lot of it will come back to technique and they're not even really often realizing so I kind of, I try to identify first kind of what's going on there. And then from a standpoint of well, once I do can see kind of what's what's obvious or where they're going wrong and we correct, say the first thing, correct the technique. As you said there, I, I, I'll just personally just start on that weak leg first. I don't think it's more about, all right, let's do heaps more volume on that because if something's weaker, I don't think more volume is always the answer. Um, so let's say you've got two clients and you got they're starting you got one person in the gym who's more advanced and you got one person who's more of a beginner would you want to give the beginner more volume to bring them up to speed faster probably not it's more of a standpoint of let's get them better let's get them learning better um, let's get their lifting um, more optimal and then they'll naturally accelerate as they go so with us with their single leg work something something where you program that that weaker leg first so you're doing it in a recovered state i think it's always really really important um and then from a standpoint of with the glutes the glutes are an interesting muscle so a lot of people struggle with you you often get people where they feel one glute really well and the upper glute not so well and this is something you, you often see for a variety of reasons it can be technique but i think this is where using things like pause reps can be a really big positive especially like a, when your glutes are contracting so using pause reps so when you pause and contract your glutes it increases what we call neural drive so you can basically send signals to that glutes and it helps with that um basically educating someone on what they're kind of meant to be feeling so the more neural drive you can send to the glutes the better the client's going to start to all of a sudden feel their glutes and just by starting to mentally feel their glutes i think that's a that's a big component of then them actually 
getting more out of their exercises. So that's why I really like doing single leg hit thrust, but with pauses in their hit thrust um, in their warmups, we'll do glute bridges, but with four to five second pauses. So things like that, I think will go a long way quickly to um, bringing up someone's ability to a recruit their glutes and then combine that with single leg work where they're doing that weaker side first. But I don't think it needs to be excessive amounts of more volume necessarily. I think it's just technique prioritizing that first and that should go a long way and you mentioned there about warm-ups so we often see quite a lot of banded work on instagram now and someone could be going into maybe a, an ordl yet they're doing a, a banded squat jump to warm up um what are your thoughts on dynamic and static stretching and foam rolling banded work for for warming up and opposed to what would be more optimal of actually doing warm-up sets of the exercise you're about to do? Yeah, so this is something, you know, that's changed over the years a lot. People used to kind of do their long static stretching. So we don't want to be doing that those long kind of holds for 30 seconds a minute. It's probably, if anything, going to actually in the short term potentially make you a little bit weaker. So you want to actually save, if you're going to do long static stretching post-session, so dynamic movements can be, uh, optimal thing where you're just moving your body and generating some heat throughout your body to increase some blood flow but i'm a really big comp- uh, uh, big fan of just once you've doing a couple dynamic movements for uh, like hips upper body mobility and stuff like that and then that's it um, and then getting to actually um, warming up so to speak on the actual movement you're trying to do so what we're trying to do really is yes we're trying to get a bit warmer but from a strength standpoint we're actually trying to warm up our nervous system so the nervous system is what's going to allow us to actually lift heavier so if you're if you're warming up say as you said kind of with um, banded squat jumps but then your goal is to deadlift it's not that specific to what the movement you're trying to teach and or um, begin the session with so Big thing is kind of, again, specificity, warm up with the movement pattern you're trying to be doing. So if I've got a client, say, for example, doing deadlifts, if I'm going to warm up with a movement, it could be like a hip extension movement, just a 45 degree if they want to practice hip extension. And then we get them on the bar and we're just doing reps of only a couple of reps and we just add weight, add weight, add weight. So by adding a little bit of weight each set, it just warms up the nervous system. It's basically telling your body, hey, this is the movement pattern we want to be um, focusing on rather than just doing a huge uh, a huge thing of all these movements we're generating a lot of fatigue we're not we're not trying to get into a fatigue state we're just trying to literally prepare ourselves for work and what we can see is being um, focused on that specific movement pattern say a squat squatting it's still going to warm up your body in each rep you're going to find um, your your, your um, hips are going to feel a bit better your um, knees going to push a bit further forward over your toes and stuff like that that's going to probably have more of a, a positive aspect on your working sets than you going to do all these other movements which actually don't translate over to a squat so it's a kind of a fine line and one of the things i don't like is where people you know, they've got an hour to be in the gym and they spend 25 minutes warming up. So you want to be efficient with it. And then if you do want to work on things, work on it, try to work on it outside the session. Less is more, I think, in a warm-up. It's, you don't want to walk in and like guys you see and they walk in and pick up the 30 kilo dumbbells and start set one, you know, things like that. But you don't want to overdo it either. Yeah, and and that's one thing with the overdoing it often, 
people might go into a squat but do three warm-up sets for like 15 reps and that's just completely going to fatigue you before you even get into your lifting sets yeah so something i really like doing is as you with the warm-up is if it doesn't mean doing you know, you know 12 15 reps so if i my client for example might be doing her first working set on six or seven reps we might do five warm-up sets, but they're only a couple of reps. We might do five sets of two or three reps and we're just adding a little bit of weight. So we might do the bar, say that she's squatting on hundred kilos. She might do the bar for six, then 50 kilos for five and then 70 kilos for three and then 80 kilos for three and 90. So the goal is not to be in a fatigue state. We're just doing enough reps. So you only need a couple of reps to warm up the nervous system. And each of those reps anyways, will you'll find will improve your mobility in that squat. The goal is to then enter in your working set ready to perform at a high level, not in a really fatigued state. And that's something I think people often confuse the two between a warm up is to prepare you, not to fatigue you. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on foam rolling? Uh, if, you, if you like it and you, it makes you happy, uh, there's not really any research to really support it. People, you know, talk about like fascia and stuff like that. So yeah. fascia is something that's just super, super hard. You, I don't think you're going to break it up. Anything with like a foam rolling, if you're going to do anything, I'd be more of a fan of like a, a smaller kind of like a ball where you can kind of um, get into an area a bit more. But I don't think foam rolling or any of that stuff is too magical. I think it <laughs> I remember reading a research paper on it a while ago. I think the research was it was kind of long-term. I don't think there's any positive effects on it, but it can be something from a, a, a very short-term, like a placebo um, aspect. It can offer something. Um, don't quote me on that because it was about a year ago I read it, but it, was, it wasn't anything that it was, oh, man, everyone needs to be foam rolling. It was one of those things that really caught on a few years ago. Everyone was like rolling their ITBs and stuff like that on the side and stuff like that. But I don't think... Research. I don't think it affects it, um, anything. It could be people like it if it's part of their routine. Do it, do it for a couple of minutes, but don't be doing where you're doing a 20, 30 minute foam roll and then go into your session because it's still a little bit use a, use a, um, you know, a ball or maybe, you know, your bicep tendon or a specific part on your calf or something that's maybe causing a little bit of distress. Be quick and then get to the movement. Yeah. One thing or the last thing I want to suppose chat about is the big topic that has been around for the last couple of years is COVID. So I wanted to finish on this because I actually think it's still back on the rise, but I don't think it'll ever really be gone. But I know myself, I constantly, with the amount of clients that I have, I'll always have maybe one or two clients that at the moment have COVID. And I myself had it. And I don't know, you were on Instagram saying it, so I I, I don't, hope you don't mind me saying it, but I know yourself had it. And I don't know if your clients did. So how, I suppose, do you approach a client or how did you approach yourself with potentially muscle loss, controlling what you can, food and nutrition around around COVID? I suppose we'll just talk about the food side of things and then we'll go into the training after that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So for me, I... And my partner, when we got it, even though we were kind of double vaccinated and all that stuff, you know, we were very, very, very sick. It was the sickest I've ever been. It was, it was actually Christmas. So it was, my Christmas was locked down in a hotel um, with COVID. And 
we were sick as as you can get so in those situations i'm not really too stressed about food it's just getting it's getting through it so but in saying that what's really interesting with covid i've seen working with so many people is there's no real consistency with how much it will affect someone so my mum and dad just recently had it my mum was not sick at all my dad was a little bit sick but then i've had clients who are 25 30 and they're just absolutely bedridden just super super sick and then you know so it's quite hard so i as usual it's kind of case dependent the what you're kind of doing is going to be off the response of how sick the client is so if someone's just absolutely bedridden my goal is not to there's there's more to life than calories macros and dieting it's just hey you're really sick let's get you through it like i last thing i want to do is focus on hey let's let's hit this protein intake because when you're sick obviously really sick you're just trying to survive but in saying that if someone's very 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 mild symptoms for me it's really just to continue with what the plan is if you're in a fat loss phase and one of my clients recently she was sick about three four weeks out of comp and so that's a stage where it's quite unique you have to obviously you're trying to get leaner for a very very specific reason so you have to as much as you don't feel like it at least try and do your best to um, get a protein target. And so she was, we didn't worry too much about calories because she wasn't too hungry, but it was just focused on protein intake. Let's do protein, um, shake something you can do. She actually um, was struggling as well because she lost her taste. So it was also hard when you're not um, feeling the best. But yeah, so it kind of depends. If you're really, really sick, let's just get you through it. Less, less severe. Let's hit a, hit a protein target at least if you're dieting, because if you're not getting many calories in, of course, and not resistance training, let's at least get a protein target in. And then if someone's very, very mild symptoms, it's just continue as is. And with the training, have you seen, I suppose, no coach this time four years ago knew how to approach it or, or what was going to happen. And um, so it's kind of new to everyone as such, but have you seen effects with muscle loss or getting back into resistance training with long COVID, not being able to train for a long period of time? Again, it, I've, I've seen lots of different things where some people, for myself, I was so sick, but then as soon as I got better, I was really good back into it. So it was quite, I was very severe for a week and then after one or two days i think i just eased myself back in but then i was just good to go but then other people interestingly i've seen where they weren't that sick at all but then from a breathing standpoint they really struggled getting back into their sessions and their work capacity just really dropped so it's quite interesting and why it's quite hard to um, go hey this is my set structure this is how you do it so it's again it's case dependent what i try to do is i'm a big fan of just regardless if it's a cold or flu or whatever they've had of just easing people back in. So I, I, I kind of look at, it depends on their program, but something like if you can even get yourself two whole body sessions back into the gym the next week, and let's just ease you in something super simple, often machine based, nothing too taxing, nothing close to failure. That's a nice progression. Get something, um, get your confidence back into the gym and then build from there. Um, less, less severe cases of clients when they come back in, they're still slightly sick. Um, I actually just did this last week. We just take um, a set off each exercise. So they might have, let's say, 18 sets of something normally. So they might have five, five exercises. So they go to 14 sets in the workout 
And again, the RPE, so just the effort per set, we regressed right back. And then we see how we go and then we can progress from there. If they feel feel fine, we can lift the volume later in the week. If they're struggling, we can regress the volume. But I think it's really important to start with a, a really less is more approach and just see how your client responds because sometimes they they can feel pretty good and then you you can push it things too hard and then they really struggle. And especially the, the, the thing that seems, I'm sure you've seen as well, the lingers is that um, the respiratory effects where they can really struggle with um, their recovery. That's why from a program design standpoint, things that are shorter duration sets, not doing things like supersets where then it comes or higher reps becomes a bit more, you know, work capacity lungs and stuff like that. So lower reps, not taking sets to failure, longer rest periods, I think are all, all pretty, pretty, pretty intelligent ways to go about combat combating the initial effects and then it's just a wait and see approach see how people respond and yeah be able to think on your feet and also program and from a nutrition training standpoint really specific to that individual try not to have a hey this is the way to do it because a that's not how you really want to look at anything really with kind of training people personalized coaching but then b just everyone i've seen has such a different response to it yeah with nutrition and training across the board COVID or not it really is just client and individual dependent yes yeah, like you, you can have your principles and stuff like that you can even have your method me- methods as a coach but you you need to be able to deviate kind of and you, you can have hey this is kind of my base structure of kind of I know where I want to go with someone but this person can be a little bit to the left or this person can be a little to the right so it's not like you're trying to do something completely different with all your clients, but it's about trying to you know get the the volume specific to the client, the the frequency specific to their client's needs. Can they only get in the gym three days a week? Can they get to the four days a week? So it's it's cool and it's important, I think, to know who you are as a coach, especially the more established you become as a coach from experience, the more you think, hey, this is probably what's best. But it's also important to be able to then deviate specific to that individual. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Just lastly, I suppose you mentioned at the start that you have done a lot of different educational courses, seminars. Is there any that you would specifically recommend? Now you do a training course for coaches yourself, don't you, for programming? Um, yeah. Yeah. So we have our, I have my coach, Mark Carroll business. And I also have my brother, Glenn, who's a very high level coach as well. Um, Carol Performance, our new business with Carol Performance. Obviously, highly recommend that. We have um, a program design course, which is, I don't think, I think it's probably the biggest in the world at the moment. It's like, it's about 40 hours of education of us lecturing and breaking down everything with program design. We really think program design is the least valued thing for by coaches, which is sad because program design is really what's built our, our results and stuff like that. So we have a program design course, we have, um, I have a fitness business strategy course, which is a business course for coaches. It's not to, it's not a, you know, a get rich kind of thing. It's a teaching coaches how to actually run a successful business, which is important. A lot of coaches these days, it's great that they're targeting. It's great that they're attacking, you know, learning, but I see so many coaches have all this knowledge, but they can't get a client. They don't know how to talk to clients. They can't run a business and, Something 99.9% of PTs don't realize when they're starting out is if you go work for yourself, you have a business. You're a per- you're not just a personal a personal trainer. You're a, you're a business owner, and that's something 
even myself learning back in the day, it was a really hard thing to kind of understand. So we've got our fitness business strategy to help coaches and our program design course, and also our qualification to have people become coaches worldwide. So aspiring coaches, our Cert 3 and Cert 4 is what actually allows you to become qualified to work in gyms and stuff like that. So obviously Carol Performance is our big thing, which I think every coach should be. They really want to get great results, highly, highly, highly suggest investing to that stuff because it's literally everything that we do ourselves, we kind of wanted to share with everyone. And then outside of that, you know, obviously people, I'm a big fan of like N1 education, stuff like that, where they do a good job of around the training biomechanics, which I think is important. Um, um, uh, my friend Lane Norton has a lot of good stuff on nutrition and stuff like that. I was, he's, he's one of my go-to sources on, on things like that. So yeah, there's lots of good people out there these days. Something I definitely didn't have starting out was the abundance of educational resources. So I, I Coaches don't realize how lucky they are. So when I talk about kind of doing education stuff like that for me being Australia I used to have to travel around the world to go to do these courses you know I've traveled to Germany for internships I've traveled to America for internships I've traveled around Australia this is when I was you know struggling with money and stuff like that so now not only do people much more likely to well, not during COVID but more likely to travel to get education out is literally for free so much on on, on Instagram you know great great world-class coaches which I can tell you used to have to pay know five thousand dollars for a week of their time and after you know traveling around the world to see them miss work now they're literally putting courses online for a few hundred dollars that you can do so it's 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 a really cool thing as a coach there's so much education out there there's unfortunately there's also a lot of bad shit out there so it's kind of deviating through and finding finding what is the good but there is a lot of good out there so i'll just my advice to coaches out there is really dive into learning but be good at a lot of things. So it's great. I see a lot of people targeting, you know, improving their nutrition knowledge these days, but it's such a, it's just one component. And I often, I was talking to my brother Glenn today about our course and stuff. And it's like, it's great to know nutrition, but once you know the basics, that's great, but you just don't want to be, there's so many other aspects of, of training, you know, program design, which is something we're so passionate about, biomechanics, um, and then obviously business from a standpoint of actually, it's great that you have knowledge, but let's have you have the skills to actually help people. If you have all the knowledge in the world, but you can't get any clients, then you're not actually helping people. So it's kind of a balance of, I'm a big kind of believer in trying to be good at, you know, all areas of, of a trainer. Um, that's where I think you really win out in the end. Yeah, and it's true the way you said we're so lucky because a lot of people struggle with college I know myself I dropped out of college it just wasn't for me yet when you're passionate about something for a couple of hundred dollars it's so easily accessible within your kitchen your sitting room wherever you want to sit in front of the laptop and be able to get that kind of knowledge rather than going to a college course and and maybe having to travel or move yeah and that's what's funny with um you know university I didn't go to university either and a lot of people get caught up, wow, you know, you have to have degrees. But the thing is, is that, you know, all the courses I've done and internships, all the people who had, you know, fancy degrees were at the same courses as me, you know? So basically like, yeah, I spent, you know, six years studying and a couple hundred thousand dollars on university fees. Now I owe, but I didn't really 
find that stuff valuable. Now I'm at the same course as personal trainers like me, you know, so it's, it's funny. So that's why I, I, I'm not a big kind of, I, I like education, but there's so much quality information out there. If you don't go to universities these days that you can learn for a fraction of the price and go straight to exactly what you know, want to know, you don't need to do years of university and do subjects you don't really care about or really that helpful. So yeah, it's, 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 it's really cool. The fitness industry these days um, from that, from that point of view. So if, if you, if you do want to become a great coach, which is a, it's a, it's a big if in the fitness industry, there is all the options these days to really attack your learning, to give you the potential to level up and, you know, be the best coach you can be. Thank you so much for coming on. I genuinely can't thank you enough. Where can people find you if they want to, I don't know if you're taking on clients. Um, you guys can find me at my Instagram is coach Mark Carroll and my, um, website is coachmarkcarroll.com and so we have all my 12-week programs and my eight-week programs and stuff like that and then also my other business um, our education business is carolperformance.com which are also carol performance instagram um, and yes yeah, so if you are a trainer who wants to really upskill and you know learn from us and literally see exactly kind of the what we do the hows the whys and stuff like that then yeah come come check us out and your Instagram is absolutely fantastic for anyone that mightn't be able to start a course right now. The amount of free knowledge on your Instagram is incredible. <clears throat> so thank you so much for coming on. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Hopefully you gained something from that and enjoyed it just as much as I did. If you want to find Mark on Instagram, you can. His name is Coach Mark Carroll. I will pop all of his details and the link to his course that he spoke about in the Spotify below. If you want to pop me a message on Instagram, you can. It is Sarah Caddison Coaching. Or if you have any coaching inquiries, you can pop me an email on Coaching at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I cannot wait for you to listen to the next one.